That was the opening music to Forbidden Planet, released in 1956, and starring Walter Pidgeon, Anne Francis, Leslie Nielsen, and we can't forget Robbie the Robot, as well as Walter Pidgeon's id <laughs> makes an appearance. Right. And we find out later that the music is actually Krell music, which uh, is pretty cool. So you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net and in iTunes and Facebook. Just do a search for Classic Movie Reviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm recording today from foggy Seattle. And I'm uh, Bob Johnson uh, in Los Angeles, and we are welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews. Uh, this time we're reviewing Forbidden Planet, one of our favorite all-time movies. Well, a little background on the movie. The uh, the studio that distributed Forbidden Planet was Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and the director was Fred M. Wilcox. He's not well-known today, not like a Hitchcock or Billy Wilder, but he did some uh, excellent movies. He did Lassie Come Home in 1943, the Courage of Lassie in 1948. And the year after Forbidden Planet came out, which was a huge success, he resigned or, or left MGM and he went on his own. And he only made one other movie after Forbidden Planet. It was in 1960 and it was a uh, racial integration movie called I Passed for White. Hmm. And unfortunately, he died at a very early age of 56. Wow, interesting. Didn't know that. I didn't either, but I, I saw his name and I thought, I just don't know enough about this man. I saw this movie uh, when I was a freshman in high school, and I loved it then as I love it now. I think I've seen it at least a dozen times. Oh, me too. I've seen it at least a dozen times, and it's one of my favorite. I was thinking that it's in my top five favorite movies, uh, the other one being Blade Runner, and then I kind of switch out the other three. I have a hard time nailing down my actual top five, but this one's definitely up there. I have the same difficulty, so I expanded my top five to now it's the top ten. Okay, that's what I should do. Just that, that don't even help. try to do the top five. <laughs> An interesting note about the movie, it's uh, it's uh, preserved in the uh, Library of Congress National Film Registry as being 
seen as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. But I forgot to look up whether it's on any of the American Film Institute lists. I'm sure it is. Oh, no. We're not going to be able to talk about one of their lists. I know. <laughs> I, I was I was forgetful. The uh, budget was almost $2 million, and the box office was about $3 million, but it's uh, brought in more revenue after that. So it was a success, big success. Well, I'm going to do a quick search on, uh, here we go, Forbidden Planet, American Film Institute. Uh, is it on any of their lists? It has a big summary. It was a novel before it was a movie. Yes, it was, uh, I think it was called Fatal Planet. Oh, it doesn't really show, they've got a big summary of the movie, but uh, not seeing any lists that it's attached to. But it's got to be on one of their lists. <laughs> it, it has to be, it really does. In the book version of the film, Dr. Morpheus uh, leaves the planet with the rest of the people. He survives. Oh, I think it's better that he doesn't survive. I kind of like and, that about it. And in the book, I read uh, that when they do an autopsy of one of those animals, they found that they weren't real animals. They were, again, projections from Dr. Morpheus's brain so that his daughter would have pets. Oh, I wondered about that. That was one of the things I was going to ask you about, because uh, the way that Dr. It's Morbius, I think, uh, with a B... Oh. Uh, Morpheus is from uh, the Matrix. <laughs> I mix it. I'm off today by about one tick of the outer twilight zone. So, Sorry yeah, about that. Dr. Morbius says that the Krell had visited Earth uh, before men had even become a species on the planet and that they had brought back these animals with them. Last night, our Klystron monitor was sabotaged. And you suspect me. Then the time has come for clarification. Sit down. In times long past, this planet was the home of a mighty and noble race of beings, which called themselves the Krell. Ethically, as well as technologically, they were a million years ahead of humankind. For in unlocking the mysteries of nature, they had conquered even their baser selves. And when in the course of eons they had abolished sickness and insanity and crime and all injustice, they turned, still with high benevolence, outward toward space. Long before the dawn of man's history, they had walked our Earth and brought back many biological specimens. I see. That explains the tiger and the deer. The heights they had reached, but then, seemingly on the threshold of some supreme accomplishment, which was to have crowned their entire history, this all but divine race perished in a single night. In the 2,000 centuries since that unexplained catastrophe, even their cloud-piercing towers of, of glass and porcelain and adamantine steel have crumbled back into the soil of Altair IV, and nothing... Absolutely nothing remains above ground. But I thought that didn't make a lot of sense because I'm I'm not sure that deer and, and tigers were around then. And even if they were, I wonder if they would have evolved into some kind of different animal on the Krell homeworld if they had been on that planet for, you know, I don't know, millions of years or, or at least tens of thousands of years. 
So that's an unanswered question. Maybe that story in the movie was a part of the script to uh, work around the fact that in the book it had a different approach. Um, there's so much about this that I that I love. I, I kind of did my highlights. I love the music. It's all electronic, which I think was kind of new for the time. That recording was made by Krell musicians a half a million years ago. And I don't know much about the uh, the people that wrote the music, B.B. and Louis Barron, but it sure fits the uh, mood plot of the movie. It reminded me a little bit of Fantastic Voyage and then also um, the, the sounds and the music from... Oh, the Andromeda Strain? Yeah, the Andromeda Strain. It's as unique to me as uh, the third man music with... Uh, the the zither. zither? Zither, yes. <laughs> yeah. I did a little research on Robbie the Robot. It was in a lot of television shows, Twilight Zone. And I, I think it was a character on a television movie from the 1960s, or television show called Lost in Space, which was remade in the 90s. I think Robbie was in that. There definitely was a robot. Was, was it Robbie? That's interesting, if it was. Yeah, they reused well, that robot a lot. I was reading that they would modify the uh, robot a little bit for different uh, TV shows. And the the uh, all of the Ro Robbie the Robot information and, and uh, equipment and suit and all are now owned by a private owner. Been restored, but I don't believe it's on display anyplace. Yeah, the robot from Lost in Space looks really, really similar. I could see where they use the same uh, body parts and whatnot, but the head is a little bit different. And the, the legs, it's kind of like on tractor, like a tank tracks. Oh, right. And uh, Robbie walks around on two two legs. Or waddles. He has a hard time. I, could, I, I can imagine being the actor inside that suit would have been a real challenge. Oh, can you, and how hot that would be inside there oh my gosh the movie was entirely uh made uh on sound stages there wasn't anything done outside i didn't realize that either because a couple of times during the movie i thought maybe it had been but not so yeah the sound the sound stage was huge that they filmed that on and and one of the scenes that really sticks with me is when the spaceship is first landing on altair three i think it is and they have it where that kind of force field comes down and it kicks up dust and then it lands and then the the ramps come down and the, and then the people come down the ramps and i thought that was so well done and when the people are walking around under the ship it's really hard to see that that's a painting in the background it, it just looks so uh, realistic to me they spent a lot of money on that it was altair 4 Oh, okay. Last week I called it Altair Six. Today I called it Altair Three. <laughs> I'll get it right eventually. Well, there's several Altair planets in that uh, in that part of the galaxy, so it's a natural mistake. I right. was looking that up. <laughs> I covered. I, that was a nice spin on that. Shall we uh, go through kind of the highlights of the film? Yeah. So it's the first one was yeah. The first one was the opening shot where the spaceship is flying through space. And I thought that looked as good as the effects in 2001 or in Star Wars. I thought they did a great job, especially compared to what else was coming out at the time, which just, you could tell were models and, and just not very well put together. 
you mentioned, and I, I remember this, the banter of the crew as they prepared to enter Altair IV's orbit. Another one of them new worlds. No beer, no women, no pool parlors, nothing. Nothing to do but throw rocks at tin cans, and we got to bring our own tin cans. <laughs> and the warning they get from the good doctor. Motion, flash me alert. Aye, aye, sir. Combat stations, blast them in, activate your scopes. Radio contact, sir, there's a voice here. Human? Yes, sir, sounds like it. Boosted. Spaceship, identify yourself. You're being tracked. Cut me in, please. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Who? Edward Morbius. Yeah, here it is. Morbius E, Ph.D. Lit D Expedition Philologist. Philologist? What do you wish here, Cruiser? Well, you, you don't understand, sir. We're your relief. We're very glad to find you alive. I, of course, appreciate your concern, but absolutely no assistance of any sort is required. Well, the red carpet treatment, huh? Oh, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Let me repeat, I'm in no sort of difficulty here. Your best procedure will be to turn back at once without landing. Sorry, sir. Commander, if you set down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. If you'll just supply me with landing coordinates. Dr. Morbius, I require landing coordinates. Very well, but I wash my hands of all responsibility. Just go away. You leave us alone. We don't need you here. So he knew that something could happen. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, one of the one of the big plot points is that Dr. Morbius doesn't realize that he's the one, doesn't consciously realize that he's the one causing all the death and destruction. Uh, and, and that's kind of the climax of the film is him coming to terms with that. I, I love the way they slowly introduce the Krell world. Uh, you you kind of yes. get little glimpses of the technology, like with Robbie... And then, like, the way that Dr. Morbius has modified his home with those uh, shields and uh, the the office that he's got that leads into the laboratory. And it's just sort of like a little bit here, a little bit there. And then they finally go underground and they see all the huge machines. And the scale of that is really impressive. Again, the special effects mm -hmm. are excellent. When the three of them or four of them are walking through all of that labyrinth of Krell equipment, it's it's so well done. I could kind of tell that that was uh, uh, special effect. I mean, the old the old fashioned kind before today's uh, approach. But uh, it's just overwhelming the immense the enormity of the whole thing. I did like the uh, the. Uh, Blocks that Doctor Morbius had put around his house when they closed, you know, it they look like the they look like the black box from two thousand and one. Oh, the, the monolith, out of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they kind of look like that. <clears throat> I wondered if that was a model that they used in two thousand one. I I like <clears throat> the way that uh, he described that door that led to the laboratory, the Corel Metal, and how he asks uh, Commander Adams to shoot it with his uh, blaster. And it, nothing happens to it. Um, and I think he calls it adamantium steel or adamantium metal. or And that's a that's a term that's used in the X-Men. Uh, 
oh, comic book okay. and in the movies. Uh, Wolverine has uh, adamantium steel for his bones, basically. Uh, so I just thought that was an interesting little connection there. It's funny and interesting how the movies sort of have a thread between them so many times. I also like the shape of the door that gave you a clue as to how the Krell looked. Yeah, I'm trying diamond. to imagine what they would have looked like, yeah. And they had multiple arms and, and uh, really wide head. Yeah, I kind of imagined them almost like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say, yeah, from the old Star Wars movies. Except they moved around a little better than he did. Yeah. I think. Maybe not, I don't know. They may have just done it with their mind. That's true. Um and then we find uh, that Anne Francis is his daughter, is Dr. Morbius' daughter. And she's so beautiful in the film and so innocent. She's just totally kind of isolated from everything else. And so she, her pets are the animals. Her friends are the animals. Which may just be projections of Dr. Morbius' mind, as you said. That's, that's a great uh, idea. I thought she did a, a really good job of portraying a really intelligent woman that was also very naive to the ways of the world uh, because she's never been off of Altair 4 and everything she had learned was sort of like theoretical uh, learning. And there's a great line in the movie about how her knowledge is, uh, of biology is, is theoretical. Altair. You always look just beautiful. Then why don't you kiss me like everybody else does? Everybody? Hasn't your father taught you anything at all? Well, he says I'm terribly ignorant, but I have had uh, poetry, mathematics, logic, physics, geology, and biology. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. Well, so far. Huh? What's wrong with theory? <laughs> yes, and uh, the crew members are trying to, uh, to get to know her, meet her, because they've been in space alone for months. And she's talking to Commander Adams, and she says, well, why don't you want to kiss me like everybody else? <laughs> and he's like, everybody else? <laughs> it was hard for me to watch Leslie Nielsen as the commander, because every time he'd come on the screen, I was thinking of him in Airplane. Yeah. <laughs> Was he in Police he, Academy too? Was uh, he in, he was in Police Squad. Police Squad. He had a oh. movie called Police Squad. He was Lieutenant Drubbin. Yeah, that's what it was. And I think uh, O.J. Simpson was one of the characters that worked with him in that uh, Police Squad. Yeah. I don't know if he was in Police Academy. I. What was the movie where there? What was that movie where he's he's go, he's making a speech and then he goes off to the bathroom but he forgets to take his mic off. And he's in there kind of like humming and singing and going to the bathroom. Was that Leslie Nielsen? Oh. You know, I, I don't remember. That's I remember f- the scene, but I don't remember the movie. The but Naked Gun. He, the Naked Gun. Oh, The Naked Gun. That's yeah, right. That's was, what it oh, was. Yeah. The, the Police Squad was a television program he <laughs> did, which I think was kind of a takeoff from The Naked Gun. That's where he was Lieutenant Drubbin. But he's such a good actor. He did serious roles. He played bad guys in westerns back in the 1950s. Really bad guys. And then he turns out to be a comedian. Who knew? 
Well, and this was a dramatic role, and he was excellent, very believable as Commander Adams, and a very handsome man as well, I thought. Yes. Yes, he, he, he was. I had a hard time when we watched Mrs. Miniver, uh, because I kept thinking of uh, Walter Pidgeon as Dr. Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the uh, cast members went on to pretty successful careers. Jack Kelly, who played Lieutenant Jerry Farman was the second uh, person in Maverick. They switched uh, each week a different episode. James Garner did one, and then Jack Kelly did another. That went on for several years. James Drury, as strong, was in The Virginian on NBC for a long time. And Richard Anderson was Chief Quinn. He was on Perry Mason. He was one of the uh, kind of re semi-regulars on Perry Mason. And then, of course, Earl Holloman, who made dozens and dozens of movies, as the, and he was the cook in the movie. That's the one character in Forbidden Planet that I had difficulty with. It was so, he was so one-dimensional. 480 pints, as you requested. Total, 60 gallons. Genuine Kansas City bourbon. <laughs> it's smooth too. Robbie, I ain't never gonna forget this. Anytime you're hard up for a couple of gallons of Lubod, you just let me know. It was it wasn't believable that they'd have so much alcohol on the ship. I, I don't think they would have any alcohol on the ship. Uh, to me, that that spaceship was kind of like a submarine crew where they're going to be in close quarters for long periods of time. And I'm pretty sure they don't allow alcohol on submarines. Earl Holloman was, was, I mean, he did well in the part, but he was kind of a comic relief for the rest of the story. And he got along well with Robbie the robot, that's for sure. Yeah, he, he really liked Robbie's uh, understanding nature about the fact that he wanted so much alcohol. And, Robbie kind Kansas of Kansas uh, City bourbon. Kansas City bourbon, and he he drank four pints without a trace of hangover. <laughs> who, who knew? I tell you. And Robbie was good at manufacturing just about anything you wanted. Okay, actually anything you wanted. Yeah, anything from food to uh, lead to diamonds, to <laughs> alcohol, whatever. So we're back with Doctor Morbius giving them a tour, and then they try out the Krell. One of the crew members calls it the brain booster. Yeah, and they're barely able to move the needle on the uh, the dial, whereas Doctor Morbius is would be considered a low grade moron <laughs> to the Krell. It's too big to evaluate. Think what a discovery uh, of Doctor Morbius. Will... Uh, what is this device over here? I call it their uh, plastic educator. As far as I can make out, they used it to uh, condition and test their young. In much the same way as we once employed finger painting among our kindergarten children. I often play with it myself for relaxation. Although working here, I sometimes wish I'd been blessed with multiple arms and legs. Now, you can see that this headset was designed for something much bulkier than my human cranium. Now... Over here, you see the electromagnetic waves of my brain sending that indicator up about halfway. I uh, 
gather that one of their own young, comparable to a seven-year-old child, was normally expected to send that all the way to the top, which by Krell standards classifies me as a low-grade moron. Yet I have an officially recorded IQ of 183. <laughs> one of the funny lines is the commander, Leslie Nielsen, wants to try it, and he moves it even less, and Dr. Morbius says, well, you're the captain of the ship. All you really need is a loud voice. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that whole, did you find that room that they were in to be really interesting because there must have been a hundred dials that would indicate the amount of electricity and power that was available, and they didn't even move one of them. Yeah, and it was interesting because it was like, I think Dr. Morbius said it was 10 raised almost literally to the power of infinity. And they had almost unlimited energy available to them. And when they were in the room there, the dial would barely move on the first uh, indicator. But then later when Dr. Morbius is attacking them with his id, the almost all the dials are lit up, which you, you have to be impressed by the fact that uh, the machine was throwing pretty much all the power that it had at that door to try to I get know. in, and that was really cool. And all of that was transmitted without any wires or anything that the uh, the humans could find as a way to transmit it. Yeah, we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but I I liked I really liked the scenes where they uh, they set up a perimeter around the spaceship because they. Uh, are a little worried that the uh, monster was going to come. They could, they could uh, sense that it was on its way, or they could tell that it was on its way. And I thought they did, the uh, special effects were great when the monster's feet—it was invisible, but you could see where its footprint was coming through the sand, and then it went up the stairs into the cockpit of the spaceship, and it it bent the. Uh, it was so big it bent the uh, stairs really like the way that they, was done. they never show the violence uh, much other than in one of the battle scenes around the perimeter the monster picks up a couple of the crew and throws them down to the ground but i thought the real horror like this is our month of horror the horror of this movie to me is is sort of thinking about what had happened to the crew of the bellerophon well gentlemen this has been very pleasant you've seen how comfortable I am here, no hardships, no special difficulties, and uh, no need at all for uh, military assistance. Now I dare say you're impatient to get back to base. Yes, sir. The moment we've interviewed the other members of the Bellerophon party. Others. But there are no others, Commander. Before the first year was out, they had all, every man and woman of them, succumbed to a, to a sort of a planetary force here. Some dark, terrible, incomprehensible force. Only my wife and I were immune. And just how do you account for your immunity, Dr. Marvier? My wife and I differed from the others only in our special love for this new world, in our uh, uh, boundless longing to make a home here far from the scurry and strife of humankind. I remember how when the boat was taken to return to Earth, she and I were utterly heartbroken. How could we have foreseen the extinction of so many co-workers and friends? Skipper, there is no record of any wife on the Bellerophon rolls. Oh, Lieutenant, look under biochemistry. Julia Marson. She and I were married by the skipper on the voyage here. I have the certificate. I thought Robbie had managed some very charming feminine touches. I take it Mrs. Morbius isn't at home today. 
My dear wife died a few months after the others. Only in her case, it was of natural causes. I'm very sorry. Dr. Morbius, just what were the symptoms of all those other deaths? The unnatural ones, I mean. The symptoms were striking, Commander. One by one, in spite of every safeguard, my co-workers were torn literally limb from limb. By what? By some devilish thing that never once showed itself. And a bryophon? Vaporized as the three remaining survivors tried to take her off. And yet, in all these 19 years, you personally have never again been bothered by this planetary force. Only in nightmares of those times. And yet, always in my mind, I seem to feel the creature is lurking somewhere close at hand, sly and irresistible, and only waiting to be reinvoked for murder. And thinking about what happened to that guy that was in the cockpit when the monster basically yes. tore him apart and he was plastered all over the inside of the cockpit room. Uh, so it, it's more... It really it, is effective. It's yeah. more in your imagination than anything that they show on the screen. Very much so. I read where the, uh, the uh, monster's animation was done by uh, one of the really creative artists from Walt Disney Studios that was on loan to MGM for this movie. Well, I think there were two of them. Uh, I was noticing in the opening credits oh, that were there were two, two okay. people listed as being from Dis the Disney company. And uh, remember, uh, remember when we talked about Logan's Run and how bad those miniatures looked in the city, but yes. how amazing those uh, paintings looked when they were outside? I, I thought the paintings in this movie and the animation that they did was just absolutely top-notch. And they kind of shied away from doing much with the miniatures that... I think there was some miniature work in the underground tour of the giant machine and obviously the spaceship flying through space and landing was miniature, but whatever they did just looked uh, very good to me. Yeah, it's well done. I noticed here, I was just reading a note, that Robbie the robot, the, the uh, making of him or her was $125,000. Jeez. Which in 1956 was an enormous amount of money just for that one effect. Wow, it's worth it. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. Uh, did Did you see in the, the the reading that you did? I noticed that there's been some talk that they may re they may remake this movie. I saw that it too. It kind of comes and goes. Yeah, I don't know if I don't think it needs to be remade. I think if they remade it, I mean, obviously the effects would be better, but. Uh, I, I feel like what would end up happening is that they would end up showing more of the graphic violence and it would be more of that. And I don't think that's going to add anything to the story. Um, I just thought of something, though. When Remember when uh, we first meet Altera, uh, played by Anne Francis, and Dr. Morbius is telling Commander Adams and uh, the Doc uh, that that uh, she's got playmates and there's a tiger, you know, there's the deer and there's the tiger and they're all sort of tame. But then later after Anne Francis has decided that she's going to go back to earth with the crew, the tiger tries to attack her. That lends a lot of uh, weight to the idea that those animals were just projections of Dr. Morbius's yes. mind. Yeah. Cause I always wondered why the tiger turned on her. But that kind of explains it. My thought was that maybe also that she was beginning to gradually become different because she was meeting these other humans. 
Oh, and so maybe the tiger didn't recognize her as much anymore. That could be it too. We kind of we did the tour, and then and then there was the attack on the ship, and then they come back to confront uh, Doctor Morbius, and uh, that's when the monster starts to uh, lay siege to Doctor Morbius's house, and that that to me is like really an exciting part of the movie. Because again, you don't really ever see anything really from of the monster, and it's all sort of like happening behind doors. Or there's that scene when the monster crashes through the forest outside the house, and trees are getting knocked down, mm-hmm. and he quickly like closes up the house with those metal shield, the metal shielding. Uh, but that's not enough to stop it. So they run into the laboratory and close up that four, you know, four layer door made of the Krell steel and that's still not enough to stop it. And uh, Doctor uh, Adam, or Commander Adams, is like, "You're just you have you're not going to admit it, are you? This is you're attacking you. It's not going to stop. It's never going to stop because it's it's you that's doing this." How's it going to my study? You still refuse to face the truth. What truth? Morbius, that thing out there. It's you. You're insane. How else would you have landed here where Alto must see you torn to pieces? You still think she's immune? She's joined herself to me, body and soul. Yes, and whatever comes, forever. Say it's a lie. Shout, let it hear you out there. Tell it you don't love this man. Not even if I could. Stop it, Robbie. Don't let it in. Kill it, Robbie. <laughs> your other self. And then Dr. Morbius is finally, finally, when it comes down to whether it's going to be him or his daughter, kind of sacrifices himself. Um, And again, they don't show that. They don't show the attack of the monster on Dr. Morbius, but you get a reaction shot from Altera and Commander Adams and, and you just again imagine like this monster like stomping on Doctor Morbius. Oh yes, and and the uh, the effect of the uh, door just being beaten on and beaten on and then melted at different levels of heat. Yeah. So that the monster could get in. I mean, it was coming in no matter what. And I, I what I noticed when I watched it again, what must it have been like for the other crew members with Doctor Morbius in the original crew when he unleashed this monster on all of them. Oh, that's what I just think would be an amazing, like, prequel. Like, oh. if they were to redo this movie, I think they should do a prequel of when they land and discover all this technology and then the attack. And, and you know, they describe how the Bellerophant, the remaining crew, tried to take off, but the ship explodes as it's as yes. it's taking off. Like, he didn't want anybody to leave the planet. He didn't want any people to come to the planet. Like, he was total... Uh, maniac by the end and and he has that speech about how he's going to dole out Krell technology to the earth as he sees fit so he was really kind of off the deep end he definitely was (laughs) but on his behalf he had some great uniforms yes the, 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 the suit that he wore that black suit was perfect for his part and Altera had some nice dresses I mean Robbie was a good seamstress too 
Yes, yes <laughs> among other things. It, now, I, I don't remember this. So I have to ask. You'd think I could remember this after watching the movie 12 times. Does Robbie the robot go with them on the spaceship? He does, because they have a great line when he's uh, piloting the ship, and they say, Robbie, you're a great astro-navigator. What an astrogator. A genuine privilege, Commander. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. The, the the only cheesy part of the movie that I thought was kind of dumb was that would they have a self-destruct mechanism in the laboratory where all you have to do is turn a little dial and then push a plunger down and the entire planet blows up? It's got to be a little bit more elaborate than that. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, they could have gone more with the one from Andromeda Strain where you had to you had to use a key and there was a five-minute delay, a little more trickery. Yeah, I thought that was like almost like... Um... It kind of felt like a last-minute thing, like, oh, we need a way to blow up the planet. Okay, we'll just have this little dial and this plunger. Okay, that'll work. (laughs) Script meeting. Our budget is about to run out, and the deadline is is here, so let's blow her up. But anyway, um, for me, the only cheesy part was that uh, the the, uh, cook. I don't know if cheesy is the right word, but it was funny, but he just seemed to not fit in. And besides, on a long trip, in outer space, he might become annoying. Oh, yeah. Even crew. a short trip on, <laughs> even a short trip, he'd be annoying. <laughs> Having said all that, though, I gave this movie a 10 out of 10 on the rating scale. I just, I love the story and direction, music, the actors, the special effects. They're all just outstanding. Yeah. 10 out of 10 for me. Same reasons. Uh, I'll, I'll probably watch it a dozen more times. Maybe I'll watch it again later today. <laughs> <laughs> have, have any of the kids uh, watched it? Because it's in Technicolor or Deluxe Color. I thought, no, they haven't. Appealing. And, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to try to get them to watch it with me. I think they'd enjoy it. Uh, it's, But it's, you know, these older movies, you've really got to kind of sit down and, and really yes. like, focus on it uh, because it kind of builds up and there's a lot of things that happen with the dialogue. And But this one has quite good visuals as well, so that could potentially grab their attention. I was thinking about the remakes that have been done of a couple of the movies that we've reviewed, The Thing from Another World was redone as The Thing, and then The Day the Earth Stood Still was redone recently with Keanu Reeves. And the difference between how their production values today versus back in the 1950s is really you know, quite striking. And so I think if they redid this one, it would be the same kind of experience. Yeah, it's it's production values, but it's also like pacing and uh, what they really are kind of focusing on, which seems to be a lot more the action. Although yes. The Day the Earth Stood Still, the remake was kind of, I don't know, I, I was a little bit bored when I was watching it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, I went to see it in 3D at the theater and kind of drug on. I kept thinking to myself, Move on, move on. The first one was, well, we that's another movie we should review. Maybe that, because that was uh, done by Robert Weiss. Maybe that could be part of our Robert Weiss month. Which is a good segue into that November. We need to decide which director we want to do. I came up with an unusual idea last night. Uh, why don't we do the films of Ida Lupino? I don't know who that is. I know. I said, she was an excellent film director from the 1940s and 1950s she did a lot of television but she also did some movies and it would be kind of different instead of the traditional hitchcock weiler uh, uh, wilder weiss ida Uh lupino 
a really wonderful actress. I like that idea. Something totally different, yeah. I was, as they say, thinking out of the box or thinking out of my mind. It's it's a toss-up some days. So uh, next week, the uh, double feature of Dracula will be out and we will have watched it yes i have my tickets i'm going to lincoln square with a friend of mine and we're going to go watch the double feature of dracula the bella lugosi version and the version that they filmed in spanish at the same time so that'll be cool i'm planning to go also on the 28th i can't do it on sunday because of some stuff we've got planned but well that wraps it up for this week thanks for listening And this is Matt Johnson coming to you from Seattle. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing you great movie watching. About a million years from now, the human race will have crawled up to where the Krells stood in their great moment of triumph and tragedy. Your father's name will shine again like a beacon in the galaxy. It's true, it will remind us that we are, after all, not God. some difficulties this morning you know it seems so disjointed but when you edit them and put it into a final version it's very (laughs) seamless it's almost the more disjointed it sounds as we do it the better it comes out yeah i know spontaneous yeah i think instead of well and then the third scene (laughs) 